0: Good morning. We're coming to you from the Spotlight Studios in Morristown, New Jersey. This is the Morning Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Ham. It's Tuesday, so we're talking real estate. we got a great panel, all of which, all of who were former Morning Spotlight video guests. This is the first time ever we've had three Morning Spotlight guests on a panel. Uh, So let's meet them. We're talking real estate finance today. Our first panelist has over 10 years of experience in the real estate industry and has held a variety of roles, including working with established and startup private equity firms, real estate tech companies, investment brokerage, and other industry-related firms. He's a director of business development in the real estate services group at Eisner Amper, Darren Griffith. Darren, how are you doing today?
1: Great. Mike, thanks again for having me and having everybody on here. Appreciate it. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Our second panelist regularly acts as counsel to national, regional, and com- community banks in commercial lending and asset-based finance matters with experience in middle market lending transactions and syndicated credit facilities. He's a partner at Murphy, Schiller and, World- Murphy, Schiller and Wilkes in Newark, New Jersey. Charlie Wilkes. Charlie, welcome. Mike, thanks for having me today. It's uh, great to be here with you, uh, Darren, and Jessica. I'm really, really happy to do this. Happy to have you on, man. Uh, And last but not least, our final panelist has been in banking since 2011, specifically in commercial real estate lending for the last five years. She's the vice president of commercial real estate at Blue Foundry Bank, Jessica Valise. Jess, how's it going?
2: Good, Mike. Nice to be here. Nice to see Darren and Charlie. So looking forward to this.
0: Me too. Me too. So let's just jump right into it. Darren, we're going to start to you. How do you see COVID affecting different ownership classes here in New Jersey?
1: Well, you know, I think they're all, you know, affected a little bit differently, right? So, so when you when you think about, you know, your your stalwarts, what we'll call New Jersey, you know, industrial and multifamily, I think, I think those two are probably holding together a little bit stronger than the other asset types uh, right now. Um, You're you're finding that, um, at least from what I've been seeing, um, you know, industrial is getting stronger. Um, I I speak with brokers all of the time. And, you know, uh, I spoke with, I actually spoke with an ownership group earlier this week and they said they just signed three big leases in industrial spaces that they have so they the leasing activity is still very strong and obviously the lease is the financial tool to the investment so obviously the investment is staying strong there too um multi people need places to live i think the strengths in multifamily are the a and b class um assets asset types or asset classes um those are going to remain strong you, you have new york uh you have new york right around the corner we're going to always be a stalwart for employment. We're always going to have a high, highly educated population that's going to be able to, you know, afford to live in, in you know, higher priced apartments. Um, as, as simple as that. Um, you know, retail. You know, that's my my bread and butter and my baby, and and I, I always hate to to talk about it, but you know, retail is retail was struggling before COVID, right? So, so so COVID has kind of been that accelerant on the fire, and is has, has kind of accelerated. You know, retail and, and, you know, you can talk about restaurants, you can talk about movie theaters, you can talk about, you know, your Neiman Marcuses, You can talk about whatever you want to talk about it. And most of it on the retail end is, is not looking great. Right? So, right. so there's that. Now, now the most interesting one, of course, to me is is office space. Right. So office is interesting because you have all the folks you know moving out of the city. Um, you have maybe some companies are, who are seeing that, you know, our employees are working great from home. Um, you know, and maybe we don't, you know, maybe we don't want to have as much, have, have as much square footage, um, or maybe we don't have, want to have as much square footage in the city, but maybe we want to move some to the suburbs in order to accommodate our employees that are going to be there, right? So I don't see that as a, a quick transition because again, office leases are a little bit longer term leases, um, but I think you can, you might have some short term temporary space that might be taken in New Jersey or Connecticut or wherever it might be in the suburbs uh, for the short term so that people can have a place to go that they don't have to commute into the city because that's a whole nother aspect of the office space is how do you get to the office, right? So so you have a subway, right? So for myself, for example, when I have to go into Manhattan, it's, it's um, Penn Station, Times Square, Grand Central Station, right? So I, I really want to go through the three most Same. traffic places in all of the city yep. in order to get into work. So obviously, no, that's not the case. So um, I think there's there's that whole part. And then there's the whole part of those people who aren't taking the subway, right? Those people are driving in and, and Manhattan's just not prepared parking wise to, to take on all of that that excess uh, car uh, car traffic that's right. there. So, um, so yeah, so office is the most interesting one. Um, but I don't think that's going to change much. In my opinion, my personal opinion, I think it's going to be you know it's not going to be a, a massive fluctuation like like maybe the other some of the other asset types. And um, yeah, so I don't know anybody else's thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I don't think office is going to go away. Really, um, mm-hmm. I agree with you, Darren. Companies are still going to want to have their teams and um, people come in. I'm seeing a lot of the whole A and B structure breakdown. Companies that are in the city are actually looking for space in New Jersey, Connecticut, Long Island to put their teams in, sort of to work close to home versus working from home. Um, I do think that we'll probably see some sort of market correction. Maybe rates will come down a little bit on on the office side, but I don't think it's nearly as bad as what we are probably going to see in retail. Right. Over just,
1: online. just. Jess, for the office um, for the office correction so you you think do you think that rates are going to drop from what you've been seeing from some of your clients on the lending end you think some of the rates are going to drop on the office space both city wise as well as suburban or do you think it's just or you think it's going to drop for both both city and suburban
2: So it's interesting because a lot of markets in New Jersey have kind of stayed in that 20% vacancy range. And I I think that maybe there'll be more demand here, so our prices may hold up. Um, but we'll definitely see some correction in the city. Uh, yeah. so many companies haven't even gone back; they don't know what to do with elevators. It's it's a huge problem.
1: Yeah, that's that's funny that you say that. We have a we have a partner here at at Amper. I was on a a networking group with her the other day. She lives in Livingston, and she's like, you know, normally it takes me two hours to get into the city. Um, and I went in the other day to clean out my office and she said it took 35 minutes to get into the city from Livingston, right? And then she said it took another two hours to get up the elevator. Right. Uh, so there's so, so yeah, there's that whole the trade-off. part of it. The, yeah. There's that whole part of it. It's the same commute. It's just a matter of kind of as kind of shifting it from you know outside of the building to, to inside of the building. But you know, you know, I agree with you, Jess. So I
0: was reading an article uh, that I had sent over to you guys on Globe Street talking about the residential market mm-hmm. bouncing back. And our first episode was uh, strictly focused on the residential market um, and how crazy that market is right now um, with super low supply, like ridiculously high demand, incredibly high absorption rates. Um, but they noticed that the commercial market wasn't bouncing back a- as much. Um, it was the kind of remaining stagnant. And, the, and a couple of those classes uh, between multifamily and obviously retail were the ones that were kind of like forcing that to lag behind. Um, obviously, the industrial market, is staying strong it's you know in, increasing right now um oh, yeah. any, any thoughts on that from you guys i, I think
3: that i think the industrial market's going to continue to remain strong and in fact it's probably going to to surge to the extent that it can right. um you know if anything there is a a lack of supply of, of new buildings that you know that can be constructed and uh, and absorbed um you know, so we're probably really at 100% occupancy, not at you know 90% or or whatever uh, number is floated around, because the simple reality is that if, you know, if you're at 90, 95, you're really at 100, right? right. And that there is room to build uh, in the marketplace to build and absorb absorb new buildings. In 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 my practice, we deal with a lot of industrial, and we're seeing activity across all spectrums of, of industrial. Darren and Jessica mentioned sort of, you know, A and B type properties before. I mean, we see, you know, activity across A, B, C, and D, yes. right? Like, uh, or maybe even F, right? Like if it's, you know, if it's a building, it's in New Jersey, and it's somewhere near a uh, highway or, or, or roadway of some, you know, some connectivity, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing interest in the in the property. In fact, we have, we have clients who tell us, like, please find us any building. You know, let us yeah, know yeah. if you can find any building, even if it's, you know, the biggest piece of crap out there with environmental problems and and so forth. And and look, I, I think in this respect, COVID nineteen is really just accelerating trends that existed prior to uh, COVID nineteen. Right? Yeah. If you if you were a non Amazon person or non peapod person before this thing, now you're definitely, you know, using Amazon or Peapod. And if you were using them before, you're using them more now. Right. So it's not, you know, I, I don't think it's the, the death of retail. People will still want to go out and have an experience. But, you know, you're seeing an acceleration and you know, in order to support that acceleration, you need more industrial real estate.
2: Right? But what do you think is gonna happen? Like For instance, these malls, for a few years, we saw a lot of the bigger box anchor stores go away, close down shops, and the malls were shifting to bringing in gyms, you know, we see Planet Fitness at a few malls, and becoming entertainment centers like... Oh God! The American Dream Mall—is that what it's called? Yes. 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 <laughs>
3: Dreamland, um, <laughs> which, by the way, which by the way, literally closed down like three months after it opened, after you know, 20 years of, of trying to get open. I think maybe it's their
2: fault we have COVID. <laughs> right, right.
0: That was the breaking point for sure.
2: Yeah. So, you know, now they have to move away from that model where they thought they were pivoting into these new these new avenues to have revenue and occupancy in these big malls. And and now we're seeing that we can't have this these many people congregated in a closed space at least not for a few years, I mean we're probably not going to have a vaccine for a long time. Um, right. And so so what do you think? Do you think some of these spaces become fulfillment centers? We just go to the mall to pick things up and
3: I, I think, yeah. think I mean I you know Darren probably have some thoughts on this as well. I mean I, I definitely think you could see more uh, you know online ordering and and pick up. Uh, at, at some of these locations, I do think I've sort of been somewhat of an optimist, and usually my partners tell me I'm a pessimist. Um, but I, I, in that, I think we're going to go back. We're going to go back to normal more than people are expecting right now, and and I just think that's because like human nature, right? Like people want to be entertained. They want to get together with their friends. They want to go. You know, they want to walk the mall, right? Like like malls exist because we like the, the experiential element. I think you're right. right. I think it's going to take a couple of years uh, before we actually return to the levels we were at. But right. I, I, I do think, I do think the experiential retail, and this is just me kind of, you know, giving my own two cents. I, I do think that will come back. I do think that that will, that will come back. The, the B malls, you know, the, the JC Penney's, the Sears of the world. I think if they weren't, dead before they're probably dead now and probably those malls have become fulfillment centers right those sort of tertiary or secondary malls they probably be, they could be converted you know to, to warehouse fulfillment center online ordering and pick up things like that yeah um, i think the garden state plazas and the the short hills malls of the world will will come back and continue yeah
2: i really like seeing targets and um and some of the supermarkets like whole foods at some of these smaller malls yep thought that yeah. was were really good idea yep. too
0: yeah, absolutely. So, I want to. So, we're talking real estate finance today. So, now that we have a good base of what we think the market looks like from you know, three experts that I hold in very high regard and have a lot of respect. Expert is are. a
3: loose term.
0: <laughs> you're an expert very, to me, man. You're an expert to me. Very uh So, so let's, let's jump into that kind of stuff now. So, Charlie, when we did our spotlight video, one of the things that we talked about was the relationship between mortgage lenders and landlords right now. Uh, so, yep. take us through some of the stuff that you're seeing in respect to that.
3: So, you know, I guess of what we talked about, you know, most specifically last time we talked was forbearance, uh, was modification and, and forbearance. Um, and, and the way I like to describe it as sort of a, a trickle down or trickle up process, you know, the tenant has to close, can't make its rent payments, calls the landlord and says, I need an abatement or a deferral on rent. And then Uh, the landlord calls Jessica or someone else at the bank and says, well, I need some kind of forbearance on my mortgage payment uh, because of these deferrals and and abatements that I'm being asked to give uh, my tenants. And I think, you know, in the initial couple months of this, uh, everyone was really committed to working together from, you know, the tenant side through the, you know, up through the mortgage lender side. Um, I think now I'm seeing both I would say landlords and probably rightfully so landlords and banks start to push back a little bit. Um, they're seeing the economy reopen um, and they're sort of, you know, leaning on the tenants and the banks are leaning on their borrowers saying, look, you know, we understand um, the numbers might be a little bit tight because you have uh, you know, your business is down or you have a couple tenants that are paying less, but we need to move back to normal right? Like we need, and you need to, you know, be making your payments. And I I, I see those conversations as, you know, as friendly and constructive. Um, But I think we're, we're, we're seeing a push to get back, to get back to normal. At least that's been my limited experience uh, with, with my clients and some people may be
0: having different experiences, but there's definitely a push to get back to
2: normal. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would agree with that.
0: Yeah. So Jess, I know we, we talked about, you know, when you first started, cause you've only been at Blue Foundry for a few months now, That's right. uh, when, when you first got there, you were doing a lot of forbearance work. So, so is, has that changed now? Or are you still doing a lot of that kind of stuff or has that kind of slowed down uh, now that we've kind of slowly moving ourselves back to some type of normal, not all the way back, obviously, but.
2: Yeah, I think, I think things in March and April were uh, very much a knee jerk reaction on behalf of a lot of, a lot of the customers for forbearance. Um, it's not as busy as it was, but I think it's something that we're going to live with, at least for the rest of this year, um, in some form or another. Right. Uh, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so then I guess that kind of leads me into my next thought was, mm-hmm. you know, the, the way that the economy is, is set up right now, I mean, interest rates are still super low. Um, you have the, you know, federal government, state governments injecting a lot of support into the economy for just regular people, uh, for businesses, uh, there's the forbearance stuff. There, there's, there's a lot of different things going on right now that you know, they're trying to help us sustain. But what's gonna happen when you know, the music stops? Like, wh- wh- where, where is this taking us? Are we trending in a positive direction? Are we trending in a not so positive direction? Uh, what are you guys seeing with that?
2: I think right now we don't know because of all the help and stimulus and forbearance and cooperation between all parties, I don't think we really know the full scope at this time. And this virus has become very much a national problem. Initially, it was kind of like a coastal issue. Um, And now I'm seeing it everywhere. And while we're opening up, it's still increasing in other places. So I'm not sure what impact that will have as well. Right. Um, But I do think that as these programs wear off, particularly at the end of this month, at the end of August, um, by the end, by 9.30 numbers, I think we'll really see what impact it's having on all the banks um, and on REITs and investors. Uh, on my end, at least, I've seen things really be slow on the lending side, um, very slow. There's a few transactions we've been working on and you know, they're moving along, but it's, it's been a very slow process. Yeah on um, multifamily. I think that the collection numbers are, are very promising. Um, but then again, we don't know to what extent a lot of these tenants are relying on stimulus, the additional funds in unemployment, savings and whatnot. So all these things, as, as, as the pandemic takes longer, I think that it's gonna have more of an effect. And anyone who had a problem before this even happened is really gonna have a problem. And probably September October
1: yeah yeah, you know. yeah. no I, I I completely I completely agree with Jess you know in the sense that you know nobody necessarily knows but you know once we once we do rip off that band-aid right we we, we figure out what's going on we and I'll say we're yeah I feel like I've been saying six to twelve months for like the last three months but <laughs> right. I say when we're when, when we're say six to nine months from now, where all the money's dried up, you know, if we are if we are coming back out with this second check right for, you know, income levels under 40,000 or whatever that number happens to be, um, what is that going to look like? You know, from from my perspective on the apartment side, I think, you know, the AB apartments are going to be relatively fine. I think you, you when you start getting into those, you know, workforce C, C class housing where um, you know, a lot of our service workers are, and that's a lot of, unfortunately, where, where the people, you know, who got laid off live, right. um, it's going to be, we're going to find out, you know, what those, what those checks look like. Right. You know, and, and to, to Jess's point, you know, collections have been relatively good. I, you know, I've seen numbers like 95, 98% collections in A and B markets. Right. So, so that's strong. And that I think personally, that will remain strong. I think, Uh, on the back end of that, when, when we, again, going back to the, you know, the the C class, uh, you know, I'll call apartments, right. We'll start with that kind of asset class type. I think you're going to see the people who own 50, hundred units. Those are going to be the people that are may, that may struggle. The guy who has a full-time job and maybe people don't pay the rents and he can't cover, he can't cover his mortgage with his full, with his full-time job salary, right. Those, those are going to be the kind of things that I think that will, you know, hit the market first or, or hardest um, there, you know, when you when you're talking about the big boys, um, and I'm not going to name any names, um, but when you're talking about your larger your ownership groups who own, you know, 1500 2000 3000 10,000 units, you know, they can weather the storm, right? They can weather the storm for a long period, their, their, their risk is spread out over 10,000 units rather than 50 units, right? So, so they'll I think they'll be able to weather the storm uh, a little bit more um, than some of the other groups might be able to.
2: Right. And the way we underwrite these things, you know, we, we look to have at least some cushion between 20, 25 percent, um, sometimes 30 in some markets. So they, they could absorb a significant amount of vacancy or collection problems before they have a problem paying their mortgage, um, you know, the bigger multifamily owners. But I agree with Darren, the, the one four and the smaller unit multifamily properties will definitely have a problem.
0: Right, right. So this this was just something that just came to me. And this is why I, I do this stuff. So Charlie, I'm going to flip this one over to you because I haven't heard from you in a while and I just I love talking to you. Um, so one thing that really stood out to me, and I know that the res- we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, yep. that the residential market is obviously a, a chaotic thing right now. People are waiving appraisals. They're waiving uh, inspections. They're doing all the kinds of things to make sure that they get that house. And I know that there's some you know, chaos going on with the commercial market now too, has that proved to be difficult to, for you to structure a transaction right now? Like, do you, do you find that it's difficult to, if you are, you know, uh, putting together transactions, do you find it difficult, you know, getting loans for different properties, you know, are, are certain asset classes, you know, are banks a little bit hesitant to, you know, uh, give a loan on an office building or something? So, so I
3: think, I think that the, the lenders that, I do work for, uh, have definitely been more cautious in this environment. Um, just before I got on our podcast, I was talking to a client who says, look, credit is drilling me down on every deal that I bring in. Uh, it doesn't mean we're completely not doing deals, but credit is really is really drilling down uh, and they want to, they're really looking at the cash flow. uh, And in many cases, they're really looking at sort of guarantor slash principal support. Right. Mm. Um, I have closed some large transactions and they were all sort of closed on a normal standard basis. uh, But those transactions were with uh, established operators who have incredible balance sheet, and probably don't really need the money, um, but they're using the money to be opportunistic, uh, to to buy another property or to reposition certain properties. So we're certainly we're certainly doing deals. I think that the credit folks are being much more cautious about uh, the riskier deals, and they're they're probably not willing to go out on a limb uh, in a way that they might have been. Um, but I would say that for the established players, what I'm seeing, and again, it's, you know, relatively limited in scope, what I'm seeing is business as usual, um, you know, with the, with the established owners, um, and the established players in the, in the marketplace. And look, that could change, right? If, if this pandemic carries on, uh, longer than people anticipate, that could have, you know, sort of ripple effects, but, you know we're talking about in, indu- you know, let's look at the different, you know, asset classes that my lender clients are, are underwriting, right? Look at multifamily, you know, as Darren said, you know, that AB product, you know, you're still having collection rates at 95, 98%. Um, most of the workers who are living in AB product uh, are white collar and probably haven't been as impacted as, right. as much as your blue collar workers, right? Yeah. So that's still remaining, remaining strong. Um, industrial, incredibly strong, right? And and there are, you know, .com type outfits that are, are still looking for more space and, and even mom and pop, uh, you know, widget makers looking for more space. So, uh, you know, we have a number of asset classes that are remaining strong. And I think in those areas, it's probably been business as usual for the most part.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I can talk to the, the opposite end of the, the other asset that Charlie was not talking about. So I, I, I like I said, I love to have these conversations retail. all, all <laughs> day, every day. And I'm not even going to talk about real, retail. I'm going to talk about retail and hospitality. The, uh, well, the, I didn't yeah, go into the, the, two hotel. Bells <laughs> yeah. of the ball right now. The two bells <laughs> yeah. of the ball, right? So so I, I was speaking with a, a gentleman who's, you know, considering starting up a, you know, a, a hospitality fund right now. And, you know, he has no interest in even looking at that. He's, it's going to be a purely equity fund, right? Because because they know that they can't finance the deal. I, I, you know, and it's 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 his first fund, so it's going to be even harder to to do that uh, again. Um, because he's established ownership group, but first funds still still a little bit harder to kind of get financing that way, right? And he has his he has his capital, he has his equity already put together with his with his people. That's the way to go about doing it if you're gonna if you're gonna do it in the hospitality arena. Um, right. and same thing with the retail end. I I spoke with a gentleman actually earlier today. Um, worked for one of the huge, huge, huge retail shops nationally um, and ish- internationally and broke off and started doing something on his own uh, this time last year. And, you know, I was talking to him about a transaction that, you know, was supposed to close on March 23rd, of course, right? I- I've heard of a thousand of, one of these transactions that were supposed to close on March 23rd that never closed, right? And, right. and, and you know, all of a sudden, you know, retailers are out and and the bank is now underwriting it differently and the value down and the owner doesn't want to sell at the lower value. Right. So, so he's like moving forward. What I have to look at is, is buying these deals cash, doing the improvements that I need to do, seeing where the market goes on the retail end. Um, he understands retail very well. And, and he's like, okay, well, I've, you know, I've dealt with a large portfolio. So I know, you know, where to find it, where to, where to kind of approach the value add positioning, and then refining out and in the four years after we kind of get back to, some level of normalcy. Now, now retail is is the most interesting of all of these products to me because that that normalcy is going to be completely different. So, so so those people who have a particular skill set, they have the equity, they have people who are going to trust them in handling this type of asset. They're going to make a lot of money if they know how to reposition it the right way. Uh, obviously, following the trends that that we're we're going in, you know, you know, with retail and e-commerce and everything else that's kind of involved.
3: Right. Right. Yeah, I think I think I think Darren makes a good point about hospitality because I I didn't mention that uh, in sort of my optimistic spiel uh, before. But we are you know we're actually seeing sort of mezzanine debt foreclosures um, and some uh, some foreclosures like that in the hospitality space on certain portfolios of hotels. And we're not talking about you know Motel Six. We're talking about some portfolios of, of some pretty premium branded hotels, right? They're, you know, and Darren can probably speak to this and just probably speak to this better than I can. But, you know, a lot of these hotels are underwritten at, you know, 80% occupancy, right? They assume that you assume you're going to have 80% occupancy. Most of them are at 40% right now. So th- that's definitely a tough segment of the market, but, you know, to Darren's point, right? I think if somebody is opportunistic, somebody has some cash, uh, there's probably an opportunity to scoop up some trophy premium type hospitality properties uh, and in five years time look like a genius for having, oh,
2: yeah.
1: having done it. Right. Right.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yep. And I think that's I think that's the timeline too, Charlie. I, yeah. think <laughs> I think it's I think it's I think it's I think it's four years to actually come back to some level of yeah. car. And I think yeah. five years you, you might have a chance to sell.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, it, it. No, well, think about it, right? Like, even if um, you know you're not overly worried about COVID-19, right? You don't have anyone in your family uh, who has a comorbid situation or is elderly. Do you really want to be in a ho- crowded hotel or resort with other people right now?
0: You know no way.
3: You know, I think I think even the people who are most cavalier about this whole thing don't really want to be in a crowded space with with other people so it's just a tough it's a tough segment of the market
0: yeah yeah all right so i'm going to move us into our closing segment of our show under the spotlight where we ask each of our panelists to give us a bold prediction or at the very least a prediction moving forward so jess we haven't heard from you a little bit so we're going to start with you so what do you got for us you're under the spotlight
2: let's see I don't think the kids are taking pictures with Santa this year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with that. Yeah.
2: I think they're FaceTiming him.
0: <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Uh, Darren, what about you?
1: Bold predictions. Hmm. I think that it's, it. there. This is a bold prediction. I don't think this is the death of retail. Right. So, so okay. I don't, okay. I, I really don't. I think, again, it's, 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 I don't know how bold this is. I think it's a, it's the transformation. Um, if you look at some of the statistics on, on, on retail, right, we're, we're just, we just always have been over retailed in the United States, right? Um, and, and I think it's just a transition into like, again, what, what everybody else is talking about. So, um, I think, you know, if you look at some of, if you look at our country, and please forgive me if I get these stats wrong. I think we have like 23 and a half uh, square feet per person of retail space nationally. Right. If you look at a place like Germany, it's like two and a half, three square feet per person. So it's like, we have a little, we have a little bit too much of retail. And I think a lot of that's going to get eaten up by, by the big box stores um, that are unfortunately not doing well. Um, But my bold prediction is retail is, is alive. We just don't know how alive it is
0: life support. All right, Charlie, round us out, man.
3: What so do you got? my bold, my bold prediction is that New Jersey real estate is going to surge in 2021. And, and, and here's why we got three, three classes, three classes of real estate that are really important uh, to New Jersey, residential, suburban office, and an industrial um, residential. You already saw before this, crisis older millennials start to move out of the city uh because of affordability issues now because of covid 19 worries every residential broker i talk to has five offers for every house uh in the suburbs that uh is on the market so i think residential real estate is going to do well uh suburban office to jess's point from from earlier i think you know Companies are going to look at establishing outposts here for their employees who, who live here and don't want to trek in through Penn Station, Grand Central, Times Square. Um, so I think there's going to be, you know, I don't necessarily think office itself is going to surge. I think there's going to be a lot of downward pressure, but I think there's going to be some support there for, for the New Jersey office market. And then and, and then industrial is, I think, is going to just keep going, keep going gangbusters because um, everyone is going to be be utilizing that that asset so i i'm optimistic i also just see a lot of activity you know i may not be doing as much finance or lending related work uh you know as i was a month ago but we have lots of clients who are really interested in buying stuff and maybe they're paying cash um but i just sense that beneath all the noise in the news that you know the entrepreneurial class is is forging ahead
2: Yeah. I mean, I think what really happened here is that COVID was kind of like a timeout for everything. And it's just going to, it's going to snap back at some point. i have to agree with you, Charlie. Right.
0: Right. All right. So for everybody listening, that wraps up our show. So make sure if you want to listen to a specific topic, if you want to be a guest on the spotlight, make sure you go to themorningspotlight.com, email us at themorningspotlight at gmail, I'll make sure I put everybody's contact information in the show notes so you can reach out to them if you have specific questions for them. I want to thank our panelists, Darren Griffith, Charlie Wilkes, Jess Feliz. Couldn't have done this without you. You guys did great. Um, Thank you for coming on with us.
1: Thanks for having us. Mike.
0: Thanks, Mike. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And everybody else, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder that any views expressed in the morning spotlight are the views of the speaker and should not be construed to be the views of any other person, any employer, or any organization. Thank you. We'll see you next week.